Hi, ADHDers, and welcome to the KDHD Podcast. I'm your host, Katie, and you're probably here because you've heard, you don't have ADHD, I would have seen the signs. Well, I'm here to help you on this journey of understanding your ADHD and how it impacts your mental health, relationships, careers, and even your body. I've invited some wonderful ADHD professionals and experts to help us learn how to cope with our challenges, but also utilize our strengths. So here we go. Hi, ADHDers. Just a content warning. In this episode, we will be discussing things like eating disorders, body dysmorphia, and fat phobia. If these topics may be triggering to you, it's okay to skip this episode, and I'll see you next time. Today's guest is Nicole Baumgartner. She is a licensed professional counselor and certified eating disorder specialist here to talk to us about how ADHD can impact how we see and feel about our own bodies and how she's helping others find self-compassion. Take it away, Nicole. So I'm Nicole Baumgartner. I am, I'm an outpatient therapist here in Wisconsin. Um, I've been working at the same place since we moved back to Wisconsin in 2016 from Colorado. And before that we lived in Colorado and um, my entire therapy career, I've been working with eating disorders. Um, So I'm a certified eating disorder specialist. That's my niche over there in the therapy land. Um, But after I was diagnosed with ADHD, almost five years ago, uh, I got a lot more curious about this diagnosis because even in grad school, we don't really learn much about ADHD beyond like what's in the DSM. And a lot of it was just kind of talked about much as you hear about it, like young boys, hyperactivity, that sort of thing. More boys than girls get diagnosed. Um, so we didn't really learn a lot about like what it looks like in women or adults in general. And, uh, so once I was diagnosed, I got very curious about it, ended up being becoming a certified specialist in that as well. And then now I am also kind of like branching into the online world, doing some coaching that way and um, absolutely loving that work and meeting strangers on the internet. That's, you know, something child me in the nineties would have been like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's powerful to know you're not alone in some of these things. Like yeah, they can come with a lot of shame if you feel alone. Shame just thrives in in uh, feeling isolated and alone. So it's nice to have other people who get it for mm. sure. I I was diagnosed at 29 about nine or so months ago, almost a year ago. And okay. so when you were diagnosed, what was the process like? Was it something like just out of the blue one day you saw something, or how did how did that process work for you? Because like you said, in school, they don't really talk about ADHD. And I'm just really curious, like for me, it definitely was a TikTok video that popped up was one of the first things I saw um, about ADHD and it, it changed my life. And so I just love hearing kind of, you know, the, the catalyst on, on what started this journey um, for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing. It's a funny story. Uh, so I work in mental health and um, at the time, the clinic I work in was much, much smaller. There were only six of us. There's like 40 of us now. We've expanded a lot. Not a lot of eating disorder treatment in the state of Wisconsin. So there's a big need. Unfortunately, it's like good for business, but you know, that bittersweet like sucks because that means people are struggling. Um, anyway, so we we're very small. And at the time I was actually in a leadership role. I was a director of our intensive outpatient program. Um, and I was in a meeting with my boss and I don't even know, I don't remember exactly what happened in the meeting. I looked at her and I was like, Brenda, I think I have ADHD. And she just looks at me and goes, you think? 
And this is a woman who's been a clinician for like 15 plus years. She does know ADHD well. I believe maybe one of her children has ADHD. She diagnoses it for people, for adults. Um, she literally, she, and then she laughs. She's very like, we lovingly refer to her as our bulldog in a China shop because she's like very loving and kind and also like kind of a bit of a tornado. She's like, oh, I just thought you knew. <laughs> she just legit assumed this about me. She's like, yeah, you're always like, I can always tell when you've been in the kitchen because like stuff is left all over or the cabinets are open or she's like, I always know when it was you. Um, literally when I was pregnant with my oldest, uh, I lost my keys at work one day and we searched for them for like an hour before ultimately finding them in the refrigerator. So like there were signs <laughs> and yes, pregnancy brain's a thing, but also that's not the first time I've lost things in the refrigerator. Um, talk about earlier signs. I once lost my retainer in the meat drawer, which is a thing my mom still likes to bring up on occasion. Not sure how it ended up in there. I was, I guess I probably was making a sandwich or something. I don't know. <laughs> but so like these, these very like kind of now looking back, obvious signs of like being a little bit what people called scatterbrained or, you know, having difficulty focusing on things. And I think growing up, I just always like had that idea of like, I just need to try harder. I just need to work harder. Um, and when things in school came easily, they came very easily. And when things were not easy, they were, they felt impossible. And I just wanted to like jump ship. Yeah. Th there were signs all along. That's such a funny story. Cause, um, I was a tomboy growing up. Um, so I was really active. I had seven boy cousins too. And so I think that that helped kind of like camouflage me a lot mm -hmm. too, because I was really active and I was like, how did this like incredible imagination? I don't know how to explain it. And so when I grew up with these boys and I just was just like them, I don't think people thought it was unusual. They just thought I was a tomboy. They thought like me being hyperactive and, you know, I was really risky and impulsive. I love to mm -hmm. climb, climb trees. I was like a tree climber. I wasn't really like afraid of things. I was afraid of like the dark. I had insomnia. I struggled with the nightmares most of my life, which is another thing related to ADHD is like a bad relationship with sleep, which I've had since I can remember. Um, even as an infant, I was a really colicky baby. I had a hard time like keeping a sleep schedule too. And so it's kind of funny to look back on that and go like, oh, wow, it was something that had been impacting me since I was literally a, an infant. And, you know, it is hard when you've grown up with it your whole life. It is a part of you. And I know people with ADHD don't like to, to say that, but I do because it is me. And if I took ADHD out of my life and I didn't have it, I don't think I would be the same person I am a lot of the things that I do and a lot of the choices I make. And um, I don't know, they just, they, they can sometimes lead back to, to ADHD. And so I'm wondering mm -hmm. if there's things like that in your life too, that you can look back on. I know um, we had a similar story with like growing up in sports and having a hard time focusing. And I, I, I would love to hear, you know, your version of that story or any, any other little, like kind of little cute little stories that you can look at and go, yeah. Oh yeah. That was, um, you there know, so, it is. Yeah. Oh, you know, like mm -hmm. <laughs> you're like, wait a sec. You're looking at your parents. Like you guys, <laughs> I literally had that conversation with my mom. Not that long ago. We were, we were talking about, um, so actually I, I grew up in a really small town and, uh, I'm married to my high school sweetheart. So we started dating when I was a senior in high school, but when I was little, like, 
I don't know, first, second grade, somewhere in there, I think I was on my first soccer team. And so my father-in-law, my now father-in-law was actually the coach of that team. So that's just small world stuff, but growing up in a small town in Wisconsin, that's what that is. But uh, we were laughing about that because he didn't remember that I was on his team. And I was like, oh yeah, definitely. Like we could find the pictures. And, um, but I was totally that girl. <laughs> Soccer would be happening over there. And I'd be like count literally counting the clover leaves and like picking those out of the grass and not at all into it or paying attention, which is ironic. Cause then in high school, I played soccer and loved it. And it was like a great outlet probably for that activity and the dopamine and all of that. But as a kid, just like totally checked out and, um, I could hyper-focus on things and pick up on them really easily. Um, I danced growing up and, but I got a much later start than most kids did. Um, but by the time high school rolled around, like I was kind of caught up to all the other girls in ballet class and stuff because I hyper, I now know because I hyper-focused on it and I like made that happen. Um, so I think I, I always, I always say it's both like a blessing and a curse. Cause there are absolutely things about ADHD, like being forgetful and missing things and the, the chaotic pieces of it that are difficult, but then there are also those, the other side of the coin, like it's both, there are amazing things that come from it, ability to hyper-focus and like try to like get on point by the time all my peers are, even though I was like several years behind them, like that's not something everybody could do. And so like being grateful for those parts and then kind of like loving and accepting the flaws that go with it too, or mm -hmm. challenges more than flaws. I don't like the word flaw. <laughs> well, it's hard because we can't really get rid of it anyway. So right. is, it worth, is it worth going, No. Oh, do I wish I had this or not? And I'm like, well, I have it. I got to learn to work with it. I, there's no magic thing, you right. know, that gets rid of it. It's who I am. It's something I've had my whole life and I've, I've learned to live with it for most of my life. And now I'm learning to really utilize it in a way. And also just being more empathetic and understanding to myself when I am struggling with something where before, when I, I couldn't figure something out or I was struggling with something, I just get really angry at myself. And mm -hmm. I think it's really hard, you know, because you take things so personally also with ADHD. And so then you do get that shame and that, that guilt, and it's just, it's never ending. So to finally have something to point at and go, Oh, it's your fault. But you know what? Now, I understand now. Oh, I'm so mad about that. And you're kind of like, it's it's all your fault. But now I know that it's your fault. So I yes. have to then figure out how to work with it. And and so I'm also curious, like, was was something because of what you do now and you're helping all these people with with body dysmorphia and eating disorders. I'm sorry, should I say disordered eating? Instead. Eating disorders. That's, I mean, clinically I'm treating eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, I, that's actually, that's a good thing to bring up actually. So eating happens on a spectrum, kind of like anything else. I mean, ADHD is like a spectrum, autism spectrum. So is eating, um, ranging from like kind of one end of the spectrum being like nor normalized eating. I put air quotes there because <laughs> it looks so different for everybody, but basically like intuitively eating, listening to your body, moving because it feels good. That kind of stuff is on one end. Somewhere in the middle, there's, you know, more like disordered eating, like dieting, yo-yo dieting, or, um, you know, it's something I could talk a lot about too, is like ADHDers tend to have some chaotic eating patterns of like maybe accidental restriction, not intentional, and then maybe some binging at night. And so like those more disordered eating patterns kind of fall in the middle. And then like eating disorders, the more clinical diagnosable you know, like anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder kind of are on the other side of the spectrum. So it, 
you could say either. Um, okay. In my clinical practice, I work with eating disorders for, for sure. So in, in your profession, you're helping others with, with eating disorders and body dysmorphia and, and just body image in general. There had to be something that maybe led you to that. And I would love to hear your story. And like, if you feel, obviously, if, if you feel comfortable, um, but yeah, I would love to hear what led you to doing what you're doing now and helping others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of different things. Um, looking back now, I can see how some of it was definitely related to ADHD. Um, but as I said, I was growing up, I was a dancer. So I was in that world where you're like constantly in front of mirrors and it's a very like aesthetic thing. Um, I have never been a human who is like very petite and small, but I was like in ballet class with a lot of people that were, I've always just been a more like muscular person, dense, a dense human in a good way. I mean that in a good way. Um, but yeah, so I grew up in that world and there was just a lot of like disordered eating is kind of the norm in the dance world. I think it's getting better these days, but I mean, this was, you know, many years back now. And it was very much the norm to, I mean, have these high school girls restricting their food intake or being on diets, things like that, to try to like, look that very specific way that ballet dancers are supposed to look. Right. And so there was that, um, a friend of mine in that world did have an eating disorder and it was very apparent at that time that there was just like, not a lot of good treatment. Um, there was even less here than there is now. Um, I think like the closest thing at the time was probably down in Milwaukee and we're like up more towards Green Bay. So it's like, it's like a two and a half hour drive. Um, so there was not a lot out there. And so that always just made me very curious. And then I think for myself, body image struggles, for sure, feeling like I should look a certain way or, you know, that I, I definitely had some of that, like seeing my, like not seeing my body accurately, because I'll look back at pictures now and be like, what the hell was I like? so obsessed about like it makes no sense to my logical brain now but in the moment I definitely remember like feeling like I had to shrink my body right it's a message a lot of women get dance world or no dance world and so I remember like trying to just search for like the perfect way to eat that then my body will just be perfect and so I never had like my, myself, like a full-blown eating disorder, but definitely like disordered eating, definitely a lot of diets through college. Uh, when I first moved to Colorado, it was actually to go to school for holistic nutrition because there was still this part of me very obsessed with like, if I just find this perfect way to eat, like all of my problems, my brain will work better. I remember thinking that like, oh, I'm so like, I know that I'm smart. Like I, I know that, but it like sometimes wouldn't translate or I would feel like I just couldn't like focus on reading things or so if I just find the perfect way to eat, my body will be what I want it to be. My brain will work better. And so I like literally moved across the country to study holistic nutrition, which then once I was there, I realized quickly, this is not the route I actually want to go. Um, but yeah, so it just kind of all was connected there of I think I got some hyper-focus on that and it became very much this like thing that I was like, even amongst my friends was known for like, oh, like ask Nicole about this specific way of eating or cleansing. I literally was a health coach for a company that does like <laughs> food-based cleanses. So in the cleanse world, I guess it could be lesser of many evils, but looking back now, I'm like, ooh, that was, I actually ended up quitting that job once I was in grad school working with eating disorders. Cause I'm like, these things do not align. This does not align. Um, 
but we live and we learn, right? Um, so yeah, a lot of hyper-focus on body for myself and, and really believing what diet culture promises us of like, there is just this perfect way to eat and all your problems will be fixed. And it's total bullshit. Like, can I swear? Is it okay yeah, swear? No, please swear. Yeah, here, okay. actually, let's get, okay, one more time for the- <laughs> diet culture is bullshit. Yeah. Louder for the people, louder for the people in the back. <laughs> also BMI is bullshit, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So it, the, the path led me exactly where I wanted to go. And so even though my ADHD brain was super hyper fixated on these things for years, I think that it still led me exactly where I needed to go because I still ended up working with eating disorders because that was my ultimate thing. Like why, why would, how does this happen? And I, I like was, just, I couldn't figure it out because the person, well, and actually really over the years and like several people I knew who had eating disorders, like, like, why would they, like, they, they're so beautiful. Like, why would they do this? And like, maybe it's all about control. That's the thing I think a lot of people throw out there. Like, oh, it's just about control. And I mean, sure, that can be a piece of it, but they're really these complex biological, psychological, sociocultural disorders. And um, so is ADHD. <laughs> So anyway, I ended up in eating disorders. I was, um, I did my practicum at the eating disorder foundation in Denver, which is a place where people can go and like, just there's groups every day. They can just go eat there and get support. It's, it's lovely. Um, and then I did my internship at the eating disorder center of Denver, uh, which is now called ED care. I think they rebranded after I left, but, um, the more I learned, the more I learned about diet culture, the more I learned about like just the lies that are out there and how it just like negatively impacts people and really just hurts people, women and men. I mean, definitely both. It's not just, it's like ADHD, right? Like does not discriminate race, gender, age, any of that, like eating disorders can happen to anyone. And um, then eventually I, I met my now boss and I, we were talking about moving home to Wisconsin and I reached out to her, she was hiring, and like that whole thing came to fruition. And, um, since then I've been a certified eating disorder specialist. And once I got my ADHD diagnosis, I started noticing this pattern of, oh, I think that client's neurodivergent too. And maybe this one too. And then there's this whole other host of eating issues that come with living with neurodivergency because yes, there can still be like the body image component, but then also there's genuinely food requires a lot of executive function, all of the executive function. I mean, you have to plan it and prioritize it and organize it and focus on the task and finish the task. And this is why I don't cook. I'm a terrible cook. Thank God my husband likes to cook because I'm terrible. <laughs> I will burn every grilled cheese I make. It's just, it's going to happen. Usually, you know, it's kind of like the first pancake. The first pancake is never good. And so what happens is I end up burning something I make, but then I get the burnt thing. So it's kind of funny that it's like, I, it's my own suffering because I contribute to it. Mm -hmm. But I would love to hear more too, as well as like, you're talking about executive function. And why do you think people with um, ADHD do tend to like struggle with eating? And yeah, eating requires a lot of executive function. And if you have unchecked, untreated ADHD and you're not actively like trying to kind of figure those out or find ways to trick your brain a little bit or whatever it may be, 
it is really easy for ADHDers to get in the habit of drinking coffee in the morning and then not eating for a good chunk of the day. And then um, suddenly it's like 3 p.m. and they're like, why do I feel terrible? Why does my head hurt? Why? Oh, maybe I need to eat. And um, so they're, you know, your body's going to react to that. Our bodies don't like to starve. Our bodies want food. Our bodies want nourishment like every three hours, really. Um, so when that happens, our bodies start to get anxious and we're going to feel that anxiety in our bodies. And people with ADHD sometimes really struggle with those like internal cues of like, am I anxious or does my body just feel weird? Do I just not like how my body feels? Am I, is it sensory? Am I just uncomfortable in my clothes right now? Um, and I think often then we find that our bodies feel uncomfortable and it gets translated as like, oh, my body, there's something wrong with my body. My body is bad. And that can actually then either trigger or really exacerbate body image issues because you're feeling that discomfort and not, and then you're going to eat and you might feel uncomfortable because then you might feel like you lost control and overate or, you know, things like that happen. And then the guilt shame spiral ensues of like, oh, I overate or I binge ate or I ate too much or whatever the narrative is. And then it's like, okay, tomorrow I need to do better. And we kind of get stuck in this loop of then like restrict, binge, restrict, binge. And the whole time our body's just on this roller coaster and feeling kind of icky and anxiety is going up. And we might be attributing that anxiety to oh, our body, to, like we just need to lose weight or change it or do something to it. So I think it's all kind of related. Yeah. And it's weird how, like, um, we were talking about diet culture and BMI is that it's so it's everywhere. And it's something that's been around for so long. And like, it's something we see on billboards and social media and, and our parents, you know, um, falling into that too. And so if it's something you've been seeing your whole life and it's something you grew up with, you're not gonna, you're not gonna question it. You know, you're, you're not going to question this thing that is so widely talked about. You know, I, we both grew up kind of in the nineties, early two thousands, which was mm -hmm. diet culture, like candy. I just, I just feel like it was like when everything blew up, I, I mean, I grew up. So my personal story with, with disordered eating and body image, um, basically for me, when I think it started is I grew up, um, as a gymnast so similar to you is, you know, we grew up with that culture where it was kind of like not talked about, but it was definitely something that, you know, I'm in a leotard and a lot of my, my body is exposed. And I felt like because I was smaller, I was a really good athlete and I was really active. And so I was able to put all of that energy into gymnastics and then eventually cheer. And I remember not really having poor body image until about middle school, um, and in my seventh grade, I think, it, yeah, my seventh grade middle school, and I've told this story before, um, on social media, but I think it's a really important story is I was sitting in health class, health, health class. And my <laughs> teacher goes around the class and she's passing out this, this piece of paper and she hands it to us and I'm looking at it and it was a chart and it was the BMI chart. And I don't know if she created it or if it was, you know, something that was universally used, but it basically had, you know, your height and all the, all the different versions, you know, all the different heights. And then on the other side were all the different appropriate weights. 
Now at the time in middle school, I'm not really sure how much I weighed at the time. I don't really remember that, but I, in middle school, I was like 65 pounds, like around that. I remember being 65 pounds for a while. And then in high school, I was about 90, 95. So I'm four, nine. So that I would say that was appropriate amount for me to be at the time. But this chart was telling me that I was overweight. And I'm looking at this piece of paper and it's like shaking like a leaf in my hand. And I remember looking around the class at everybody else and like feeling so sick and like shrinking in class, like in front of everybody, just like shrinking down. And, you know, it was, it was just one of those moments that's always burned into my mind. Like, okay, I was handed something in health class in a class we're learning about nutrition how your body works and the different parts of your body and and how your body is supposed to run health in in a healthy way. And so from getting that from a teacher who's teaching us about health, um, it really stuck with me. And so Mm -hmm. from that point on um, is basically when it started. And I didn't, I wasn't very like um, open about it because I think my ADHD allowed me to shut off my appetite at times. And I know that sounds crazy, But I really could, like if I was, if I was too overwhelmed to eat, or if I felt bad about myself, I could literally acknowledge my hunger pains and go and focus on something else and, and basically ignore them or shut them off. And so I, for about most of my middle school career after that point, I was, I would buy a bottle of water and a bag of Lay's chips. And that's what I ate every day in middle school. And to the point where I had friends coming up to me and like worried about me. I had two, two kind of guy friends that, that um, grew up with me who were like, this is not normal. This is not like, you need to eat something more. They were definitely seeing the signs of that. And I remember telling them, like, I literally just don't have an appetite for anything else, which at the time was very true because I didn't, because I think my, my stomach shrunk or, or something, but I literally just didn't feel like eating anything else. And you know, I, I got to the point where I would eat in front of them to make them feel more comfortable, but I felt really bad about it. I was embarrassed by it. So not only was I like kind of shamed into it, I was like so shameful of it. And then, you know, as I started getting older, um, going into high school, there was the America's Next Top Model going on. I was so involved in that. And then I became um, a cheerleader. I was scouted by a high school cheerleading coach in middle school who um, came up to me out of a crowd of people and was like, wow, you're so small. And like, you're, you seem like you'd be a great cheerleader. And so I got like this really positive feeling like he let, he picked me out of a crowd of, you know, 200 kids out of all 200 (laughs) kids, he picked me to come up to and talk to positive reinforcement. And so he, and this is not just like this rinky dink cheerleading team from um, the Bodunks. Like I, this is a nationally ranked state cheerleading team that was huge in my town. Like um, football and cheer are big, big, you know, like big in my town. And so mm-hmm. it felt kind of like a celebrity or like um, a recruit coming up to you and telling you like, oh, you're the most beautiful person, you know, you're going to do great. And I'm, you're going to go places. And he, he picked me. And so it definitely reinforced like being small will get me farther in life and being small will, will get me opportunities And Mm -hmm. so it definitely didn't help. And so I, then we go into cheer culture and we go deeper into cheer culture. We're looking at that where eating disorders and disordered eating were not something talked about, but it was definitely like 
it was like definitely under the radar. Yeah. It's and like, like implicitly implied, like it, you yes. just know that you should probably be doing those things, but no one maybe says it out loud. No. And what was really interesting is what's different from gymnastics is gymnastics is an individual sport. And so then I move on to cheer where I am cheerleaders are actually ranked basically by how small they are, because, you know, we weren't typically doing like the pyramid positions or, or those stunts, mm -hmm. but basically the person at the top of the pyramid gets the best parts. They all eyes are on them. And so then again, that's reinforcing again, my, my disordered eating is it was showing me like the smaller you are, the better you are and the more attention you'll get. And the more, you know, my self-worth was based off of my weight. And so I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't one of those people that were like obsessed with the scale. I was just obsessed with how my body looked. And so I would lay in bed and I would just pinch different parts of my body to mm -hmm. see like how much fat that part of my body was storing. Body I was yep. doing that. And I had no idea what that was. I just thought that was like normal. And then of course I'm losing weight in high school and I'm not, no one's mentioning it. They're all just like not mentioning it, but no one was thinking of it in a negative way. I was getting so many compliments of how like thin I was getting or how skinny I was. Culture. You're or either losing weight and you're successful mm -hmm. or you're not doing that. And like you're failing. Exactly. And so I was like going to 7-Eleven and I would buy those slim fast drinks. And that's what I would have for lunch is I would have, you know, some a slim fast drink for lunch and I was losing weight because I was just eating one of those a day until dinner um and so that was and then also again I'm getting that positive reinforcement and I was doing mm -hmm. well in cheer and I wasn't like exactly like a week but I'm looking back at my high school career and why and one of the reasons I probably struggled so hard in school was because it was a mixture of my ADHD but also I wasn't nourishing my body hungry brain hungry brain is a very real thing and yeah. when you're when you're not nourished enough I mean so I mean our brain's whole purpose is to keep our bodies alive right like it's what it does homeostasis all those things and when we're malnourished our brain's kind of the first thing to sacrifice parts of itself as in like the, uh, so on a neuron, there's the things called the myelin sheath. They look like little white beady, they're, they're fat is what they are, are made of mostly fat and they help the neurons like fire quickly. And they're great for when you're nourished and you're, you know, all that kind of stuff. But when you're not nourished, your body's like, mm, we don't really need to have fast firing neurons. We need to keep our heart working. We need to keep our digestion working. So those get like depleted. And so like brain fog is very real when people are malnourished. And, you know, if I, if I had a dollar for every time somebody walked into our clinic um, after being having an eating disorder triggered in health class, I'd have a lot of dollars, a lot of dollars. That's so, that's so scary. know that you are very not alone in that. And it's still happening. And we have, I work with some amazing dietitians and some of them have gone into the like the schools locally here and like tried to help educate better around nutrition because most of what they're teaching in health classes are very much like diet culture, BMI, like, yeah. So the BMI was not actually ever intended to be a measure of health. Um, it was made by a statistician, I think like in the 1800s, early 1900s, a long time ago. 
Um, and it's very Eurocentric. So it's not at all taking into consideration like cultural differences. Um, and even the guy who created it said it was not meant to be a measure of health. It's literally arbitrary numbers. It's height, weight times the square of your height. I don't remember now. I used to know the formula, but regardless, it's arbitrary numbers. It's not, it was never intended to measure health. It does not take into consideration bone density, muscle mass, any of that stuff, um, biological differences. I mean, even Everything. women, like if you think about women, we store fat in our breasts, in our legs. Like, we need that. We yeah. Need, we need fat. And so it's so frustrating because the, I don't remember the boys really struggling with that in school because they're being my probably like worked out, but. Well, it was made for white boys, white men. That's what the initial formula was for. So women were not considered much into that. Certainly people of color were not. Um, and so it's just, it's a, it's it not a good measure of health at all. Um, if I think it does way more harm than good. Um, yeah. The only time I really even use it, even in eating disorder realm is because like insurance companies have to know it because they're still stuck in that model, which is all like, that's a, that's a whole other podcast rant, but like, <laughs> Yeah, so for eating disorder treatment, sometimes uh, insurance companies need BMI information um, in order to continue covering, to decide if people are sick enough or not, which is also not okay because eating disorders don't look a certain way. Like not everybody who has anorexia has that like, you know, low BMI emaciated look that we often think of. So it's very frustrating. But yeah, not a good measure of health. Very, very much rooted in fat phobia. The medical community is very behind in still pushing a lot of fat phobia, doing a lot of correlation versus causation when it comes to health issues, not looking at the fact that a lot of the health issues actually correlate more to the negative health impacts of weight cycling, meaning like yo-yo dieting and going up and down and up and down and up and down in weight. And that can also be, or can often be more detrimental in health than just living in a larger body. Wow. Those, um, those diet culture marketers must be doing a pretty great job. You know, when you're a multi-billion dollar industry, you can kind of do whatever you want. <laughs> so that's, I, I would love to hear more about, um, kind of your thoughts on, on the medical in the med, cause you are in the medical world. And so, you know, I, I'm not going to put this story in here cause I might poor boyfriend, but he, he went to the doctor, I want to say like a year or two ago and he's five, we'll say five, nine, just to be nice. He's a five, nine, you know, average looking guy. And he, he's a healthy guy. Like I feed him, like I cook all of his meals and we're eating basically the same things. He eats an oat, he eats a bowl of oatmeal every morning. Gross. Anyway, sorry to everyone who likes oatmeal, but he's like a healthy guy. So he goes to the doctor for something. I can't remember what it was. And I happened to go with him and we're in the doctor's office as we're leaving the nurse hands him this like piece of paper I'm like what is that he's like I don't know and you know because they just always give you papers and it was a and he handed it off to me and I read it and it basically but was like hi you're thanks for you know being a patient here here are some tips to help you with your weight and it basically like had a list of things that said like diet and exercise and all this stuff and I'm looking at this guy and I, I just got so mad. 
and I think he kind of brushed it off, but like something in my mind, I think I went back to that 12 year old girl triggered in me. And like, it just made me so mad to see that diet culture and body image were so deep rooted in the medical field where whatever he was going in for treatment for had nothing to do with his weight, had nothing to do with his diet, had to do with his health. And they were trying to tell him like, oh, this wall, this might also help. And so I just, I kind of wanted to hear from the medical field, like, where do you see fat phobia occur and where do you see these like almost these um, endorsements from the medical field in diet culture? As a, as a woman who has had babies myself, like my, my OBGYN is a phenomenal human being and she never once brought up weight to me. And I, I love her so much. Like it's rare to find a doctor that you really, really like. Um, So it's not her, but like the just like their normal standard of practice is when they give you that printout, you know, it does show your weight and your BMI. And then if your BMI is in the obese category, they give you a printout that says, you know, you're obese and you should do something about that. And the word obese is also a terrible word and does a lot of harm too. So I don't often use it, um, but I'm talking about medical stuff and that's what they, that's the term they use. So, um, so as a pregnant woman with both of my children, that was where my BMI was at. And so I'm literally a pregnant woman trying to nourish my body, grow a human and like getting this printout telling me like my body is wrong. And in a different time in my life, that would have like really bothered me. Like before I had done a lot of this work myself or through like understanding body image better and knowing like that the BMI is not a good measure of health anyway. Um, but yeah, I see it in uh, working with eating disorders in, um, when I have clients in larger bodies who are trying to just access freaking medical care, like they just want to go to the doctor and get access to care. They just want to go in and work on a health issue or a concern they have and not be told immediately that it's because they're fat. Like, oh, just lose weight. You'll feel better. Like, well, actually it's an ear infection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or whatever. Um, so I do have clients in larger bodies who are constantly discriminated against in the medical profession and told to either go on weight loss medication or get weight loss surgery, which I mean, that comes with like a whole other host of side effects that, you know, it's, it's a big decision to do something like that. And um, yeah, it's, it's, wildly frustrating that the medical community kind of refuses to look at those other markers of health. Like, are they engaging in movement that feels good to them? How's their blood pressure? Like I have clients who are in larger bodies who every other marker of health is great. Their labs are great. Their blood pressure looks great. They do engage in healthy movement because they find joy in it. And they still go to the doctor and get made to feel like they are just like, you know, all of the things people believe about people in larger bodies. You're lazy. You're not trying hard enough. Actually, it's a little akin to ADHD, but different, right? Like you're lazy. You're not trying hard enough. You just need to eat better. Mm-hmm. And it is like the thing that just, it fires me up. I've yeah. had many clients where we've just like, scre- like tr- screaming in session of like just so much frustration and so much anger around the fact that like all they want is access to medical care adequate mm-hmm. medical care without that discrimination. And that's, it's really hard because not only do you, are you getting this like advice from medical professionals is that we're, we're struggling with stuff that is so much rooted in who we are and like how we feel about ourselves. And so I think that's something to talk about is that ADHD 
really has a huge impact on on how we see ourselves and then also like how we are taking care of ourselves you know because we do have that executive function and we do tend to hyper focus on parts of ourselves and i hearing from a clinician i'd love to hear like your thoughts on that and then maybe some just advice on what you would tell other other people who are struggling with this yeah yeah i mean i would definitely say you know if if you're really struggling with body image um, to the point where it's taking up a good chunk of your day or you're constantly obsessing over food, like it's, it's worth reaching out to a professional about, and whether that's an eating disorder informed dietitian, because that's going to be different than like your kind of regular run of the mill registered dietitian that maybe works at a hospital. Like someone who specializes in eating disorders is going to have a more health at every size, intuitive eating approach versus other dietitians tend to have a weight loss approach. So just a little blurb about that or a therapist that also specializes in that kind of stuff, because again, not all therapists do, and some can accidentally cause more harm than good. And like, almost like side with that, like diet culture, disordered eating part of like, oh yeah, you want to lose weight. So let's like set goals around that and let's do that. It's like, well, let's work on, you know, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier talking about acceptance of like accepting that we have ADHD and it's a part of us and accepting our bodies is hard. It's hard work because we're constantly being fed messages to not do that. But finding someone who can help you work towards acceptance is, you know, it's so powerful in that healing process. And so that's a lot of like what I do in my therapy practice is help people accept who they are, where they are, regardless what their body looks like, regardless of what they wish their body looked like and just find a way to love themselves more no matter what they look like and so it's worth finding people who really get it mm -hmm. yeah and help you know asking for help and being honest and I was wondering about um I we hear the term body dysmorphia a lot in the ADHD community and mm -hmm. it's still something I'm still learning about and like learning how much it's impacted my life because I did the same things as you did as I look back on pictures of me and like a videos and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I thought I was so overweight. I thought my arms were too big and my stomach was too big or flabby or I had too big of like I was always I always had like a big butt and big thighs because I was a gymnast. And so I look back on that and I'm like, oh, man, like I wish I could go back and, and hug that girl. And I'm realizing now like I didn't know better because of diet culture, but also because I wasn't seeing my body the way that other people saw my body. And so I'm curious about how body dysmorphia and ADHD kind of contribute to each other in, in, in not really the most positive way um, yeah. for us. Yes, yes. There, there definitely needs to be more like research done on this. Um, but Definitely, there seems to be a pattern of uh, uh, many people with ADHD also struggling with some level of body dysmorphia. And I think in part, yeah, that, that hyper-focus, then like the diet culture stuff. And I think dysregulation plays a big role too, of like if we're experiencing emotion dysregulation, which many people with ADHD do struggle with regulating emotions, um, we want to try to find a way to regulate. Like we want to try to find a way to feel better. And I think often 
our bodies become a scapegoat for that of if I can control this or if I can make this look a certain way or really focus in on this, then either I don't have to feel whatever that that really extreme feeling is or like it'll make me feel better. So it's almost this like, I think it can be this like regulating tool sometimes of getting really focused on our bodies, really focused on trying to fix them or change them or a flaw we feel like we have and not seeing it accurately. I think that's a pretty big hallmark of body dysmorphia. Typically what you see when you look in the mirror is probably not what someone else sees when they look at you, which is difficult. Even when you're in it too, like it's really hard to see it when you're in it. If you're obsessing about your body image or staring in the mirror or doing like you had mentioned, like those body checking behaviors, like if, if that's something that you're regularly doing, like that's a red flag that like, maybe that's worth talking to someone about who's going to get it and actually be able to help you figure that out. And maybe like go dig underneath of like, what's this really all about? Yeah. I think lots of layers. I did make a post about it. And so kind of this like perception of how we see ourselves and it's influenced by culture and our beliefs about ourselves and our friends, our family, you know, like if, if you have a mom who talks about dieting a lot when you're a kid, like that's very likely to impact your body image um, because it's this like kind of indirect message that like smaller is better or I better not be in a larger body because that's not acceptable. So I think there's that piece of things. And then I think, so body dysmorphia is kind of a very extreme version of that. Then it's a, it's a diagnosable by the DSM disorder where you're like obsessing about it and not seeing it accurately. And the, the, whatever the perceived flaw is like, is taking up all the brain space. Like it's an obsession. Um, it's very much in line with like, almost like obsessive compulsive disorder. And so I think that in part, hyperfocus plays a role. And I think sometimes that's, I think that can be, a, there's a lot of layers. So I think in part, people pleasing can be a, a layer. Um, which I don't know if I've really actually talked about that. I don't think I have that in the post, but like, we want to be liked people with ADHD have rejection sensitivity dysphoria, right? Like it hurts when people don't like us or when we think they don't like us. And if we're kind of being fed this belief that looking away or shrinking our bodies or whatever it might be is like the way to be liked and accepted, it would make sense. We'd hyper-focus on something like that to be accepted. And so there's that piece of things. And then I think with that emotions and feeling dysregulated, maybe having anxiety that we're not sure what to do with, or just like feeling wrong in our body, like emotions can be such a somatic experience, but if we don't have that connection of knowing that that's what's going on, I think again, often like we just feel wrong in our bodies and people with ADHD also tend to be very sensitive and um, feel emotions really like they're really big and, we don't know what to do with that we're going to try to find other ways to make it feel better like that's just natural human nature we want to regulate we want to feel regulated yeah finding ways to do that and sometimes that ends up kind of accidentally being like oh i i skipped breakfast and actually i felt pretty okay but restrictive behaviors can be very numbing in nature and so Often it's not that like skipping the food per se made you feel better, but that like numbing feeling, or even, you know, after a while, our bodies, you know, hunger cues take energy. 
to create. And so if we haven't been eating enough, our bodies are just kind of like, well, like, screw you. I'm not going to keep telling you you're hungry because you're not listening anyway. And so like that regulatory system kind of goes away. So we think like, oh, look, I'm like feeling better and I'm feeling in control and I'm feeling all these things. Um, and then there is a desire to feel that like constant narrative people with ADHD kind of receive from outside sources of that, like they need to be fixed, you know? And so along the lines of, well, maybe if I fix this part of myself, if I look this way, then people won't really notice the, you know, my scatterbrain or that I forget things. And I don't think these are conscious thoughts. I think they're very like below the surface, but I think that's a, a lot of the reason why body image can be a struggle. Mm-hmm. And we were, you were talking about at the beginning, you were talking about like, um, kind of like your family dynamic and what you're seeing at home. And then, um, my mom is like five, one, my mom was a cheerleader growing up. And so that was something I think also was instilled in her as well. Is that like same thing, like the person, the smallest person's at the top of the pyramid kind of thing. And so I'm growing up and I'm moving into my teenage years where body image is so important and how you feel about yourself and how you're perceived by others in your, in your own mind. And so I'm watching my, both my parents, but mostly my mom go through this diet culture, that yo-yo dieting, that, um, this is going to work, you know, the slim fast, the weight watchers, you know, I, I can name about 50 different diets that she's, she's tried. And so mm-hmm. I'm watching this woman who had a very similar body to mine yep. struggle with her body image. And I think that also reinforced like, oh, this is normal for me to feel this badly about my body. It is mm-hmm. normal for me to, you know, want to change the way I look and that I will feel better about myself when I look the way I want to look. Mm-hmm. And so this woman that I love and admire and um, get compared to all the time is, is struggling with her own body image. So I'm watching her kind of go through this whole thing. So it definitely instilled in me that having poor body image was, was normal. And that if somebody who looked like me and was not happy with their body, how could I be, or why should I be happy with my body? Because Mm -hmm. there are obviously things that I needed to change. And so I don't think that was very good for my developing brain and my body image at that time. And it's still, you know, those things don't go away. I don't think, I think whenever I, I grab something to eat or I'm ordering something from a restaurant or I'm about to make something for myself, or I'm walking at the grocery store and I see those little hundred, hundred calorie packs, you know, anything like that. It it sends me back to that. Like, oh, these, you know, those are things that my mom did, or I did, or I did because of my mom. The only reason I drank slim fast is because my mom drank them. I think we do monkey see monkey do. And I didn't at the time know that it wasn't okay. And at the time it wasn't her fault either, because like you said, these billion dollar companies are making money off of your insecurities. And that is not just you, but it's passed down to, you know, your kids or your, in your family. And, and it is really hard to, to see that and to even now, like you're, I'm seeing my friends struggle with their body image and their calorie counting, or they're checking the scale every day. And I don't, I don't know what to say to them to, to not make them feel ashamed, but to encourage them to start loving their body. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that you would say to women who are struggling with their body image and trying to break these, these, um, intrusive thoughts about their body. 
um, because it's yeah. not easy and it's hard to tell a friend or talk to somebody about that. And then let alone also talk to yourself as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. It's the tea we're all steeped in all day, every day. The messages are everywhere. And yeah, I think everyone's doing the best they can and, and believe that whatever, you know, whatever diet or whatever number they're trying to get their bodies to be, or whatever it might be, like, they really believe that that's the best thing for them. And so coming from that, like compassionate place of like, I get it, it's everywhere. It's, it's impossible to ignore and going against it is an uphill battle. It really is like being a person who's like anti-diet and, you know, about like body positivity or fat liberation, any of those things, like it's, it's an uphill battle. And even like some of those movements have been very um, like hijacked in, in ways that they were not intended to be anyway. But like, so I, I like to help women like understand that like it's valid to have these fears and to have these desires to want to change these things because it's everywhere. Um, And then often offer a lot of education and support around figuring out like, where did your belief in your body image come from? Family stuff, cultural stuff. I mean, um, I mean, fat phobia in general is very rooted in racism and fear. There's a great book called um, Fearing the Black Body that goes into the history of fat phobia and so helping people understand that stuff, that end of things, even like where does fat phobia come from? Why are we so afraid of this? Because historically, if you look back in different eras, at one point in time, like it, it was the beauty standard to have like rolls and curves and things. It wasn't until later when, you know, the, the beauty standards have changed and a lot of it has been rooted in like outright racism. And so helping people understand that and then helping people understand that they actually don't have to love their bodies. Cause I think when you're going from a place of just like hating your body or feeling like your body is wrong, like talking about loving your body can actually kind of like shut it down. Like it feels like too much. It feels like, like that's impossible. That's never going to happen for me. So I actually go in more with like a, can we find some neutrality? Can we just like accept that we have a body? a meat suit, as I like to call it. Like, we're just like on this planet, spinning around in space, wearing our meat suits. And somehow we're like conscious, like, can we just accept that we have a meat suit? Um, and yeah, I, I share a lot of resources and I just give a lot of validation and support in, in figuring this out. And it is a journey and a process that looks different for everybody in like discovering, can I accept my body as it is? And can I stop not only hating my body, but also understanding the biases I have towards other people's bodies and the judgments I make towards other people's bodies. Um, Because it's another thing people don't like to admit that they probably judge other people in larger bodies. You know, like it's kind of this implicit bias that again, everyone's just steeped in it. It's not because we're trying to be jerks. It's the world we live in. Or when like, you know, I have people in my life who don't really understand eating disorders because they're very, there's a lot to understand and there's a lot of misconceptions. And so that people will say things like, oh, I wish I could have an eating disorder and not eat so much food. And I'm like, not sure where to begin with this. (laughs) Gotta pick my battles here. That's when you like get your notepad and your pen out and you're like, so 
tell me, tell me more about that. Tell me more about this. Uh, <laughs> you're like, I'll send you the bill. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just, I think more research definitely needs to happen around this like overlap between body dysmorphia and ADHD and disordered eating and ADHD. But like some research is already out there. And I think there's like a three, I don't remember the exact number, like a 3.6 times higher likelihood of someone with ADHD having an eating disorder versus like their non-ADHD peers. And I think the other statistic I read was that like potentially up to 15 to 20% of ADHD have some kind of diagnosable eating disorder, meaning like more than that probably have disordered eating and, oh, it's snowing. Did not know that was happening today. Um. Anyway, uh, yeah. Um, so, I think I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but I think you have. You might have ADHD. Just, just a little. No, don't worry. It's just a little ADHD. <laughs> We're all a little ADHD, right? Aren't we all a little ADHD? On the podcast can't see my face, but know that I made a a face, a face for that. I think, I think they're making <laughs> gruntled the face. They're making the same face at home right now. They're like, but, right. Thanks aunt Sherry. I didn't know that you were a ADHD yeah. consultant, but is there, um, so you've got this wonderful program. I know that you're a coach. Um, and I know that you're, you're trying to help others kind of, you know, break down this stigma about body image and about their bodies and, and really help them. And I, is there anything that you would like to plug or, or, um, just put, talk to, tell me name, ads, uh, websites, anything that you're promoting, just lay it all out there. Yes. Um, so I, well, if you happen to be in the state of Wisconsin and need a therapist who specializes in ADHD and, eating disorders. I, I'm in Wisconsin. That's where my license covers me for therapy work. Um, and so then for coaching, I, you can find me on Instagram. My, my handle at the moment is mindfully underscore ADHD. And I kind of made it that when I was first starting out not real sure where this was going to go. Um, so there is a potential that that's just going to change to my name at some point here. Um, but that's the handle at the moment. And I I really just enjoy sharing things there, like giving people education on this stuff and putting, you know, some, some resources out there that don't seem to be out there, like talking more about the therapy options, talking more about the body image and ADHD connection that I'm seeing in my clients that I work with. Um, Cause I'd say like over half my caseload in my therapy practice at this point are, are adults with some type of neurodivergency. Um, So I am putting together a program right now that is actually to work on like it kind of be an introduction to mindful awareness practices and self-compassion for people with ADHD um, for a lot of reasons. Number one, my, uh, my graduate program was, so my degree is in mindfulness-based transpersonal counseling psychology, um, but it was very much rooted in like learning mindfulness techniques and utilizing those therapeutically. And, um, I always say like mindfulness was my medicine for ADHD years before I knew I had ADHD, um, as is nature and hiking and like a lot of things like that too. But, um, I think a lot of times people with ADHD think that like they can't do mindfulness or they're not doing it right because there's a lot of misconceptions out there about what it really is. Um, And then, so I like to help people better understand that and find practices that do work for them. Um, Maybe it's not sitting on a cushion for an hour, but 
that's fine. There's lots of other ways to practice. And, um, and then the self-compassion piece is because I think it's just something we all really need, whatever our struggles are with ADHD, whether it's those inner narratives, like we're lazy, we need to try harder, or we're struggling with body image because self-compassion is a big piece of starting to heal the relationship we have with our bodies. And, um, so it's a four week program. Um, we'll meet once a week. It's going to be a live coaching program to kind of talk about the topic of the week, go over, like do some practices, do some actual like experiential work. Cause that's what I thrive on and then have some time to discuss it, ask questions, debrief. Um, and there'll be a workbook that goes with it. Um, so that is doors are opening for that on March 19th and the first group will be March 26th. So a couple weeks. Awesome. That's so great. And I appreciate everything that you're doing to help others with their, with their body image and just educating us about it and breaking down those stereotypes and the stigma. And then also just talking about diet culture and, and BMI and how it is all in your words. What was it again? What did you call it? Bullshit. <laughs> and so yeah and so I just I really appreciate it because it is it is helping a lot of others to realize how much their ADHD and how much their ADHD plays a role in, in how they see their body and how their body makes them feel and so I think it's so important to to learn from that and also the compassion that you're showing for others is is, is going to change um change the world and I appreciate it so much I appreciate everything you're doing and then also just your vulnerability of sharing your story, because there are so many girls who have a story like yours and hearing it um, will just help them feel so much better. And like you said, it always feels good not to feel like you're alone in this world. And so I really um, thank you so much for sharing your story with me and, um, you know, send me that bill. And I'll be sending you some cheese curds down the line here. <laughs> Yeah, I'll take I'll take all the cheese curds and um, maybe I'll send you something from Oregon, some pine needles. I'm not really sure what we're known here. We're mostly known for some of this, but I four-year-old does that. love pine cones. So, Ooh, you know, I do have a Douglas fir in my backyard, who nice. and it gives some pretty nice pine cones and some squirrel Beautiful. activity. <laughs> well, awesome! Thank you so much, Nicole. Yeah, awesome! Thank you for having me on. I'm so grateful for the work you're doing too. I think this connecting people and bringing people together and helping people feel less alone. That is invaluable. Yes. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to be a part of the KDHD community, check out my Patreon where you can connect with fellow ADHDers, get some goodies and help support this podcast. Thanks for coming on this journey with me today and I'll see you next time. The KDHD podcast is written, produced and edited by me. The wonderful music you are hearing was created by my dear friend Sylvie. And for resources on this episode, check out the show notes on my website. Bye!